So, okay. I have a beef with, I think, dramatic TV shows right now. Okay. So, you know how when you're watching TV or you're watching like a YouTube video or whatever and a commercial comes on for this new drama TV show? And right. it's like, I'm just here to find out what happened to my sister. The jury is ruled guilty of murder. I think I put an innocent man away. <laughs> jury duty, Tuesdays on Fox. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, ridiculous. Um, yeah, I, I will say sometimes they definitely, ha- um, they, they up the drama way too much to where it's just like, that is cheesy as shit. Come on. I especially hate it when, uh, you know, they do the commercial for like, next week on Grey's Anatomy. It's super dramatic. And then you watch the episode and you're like, oh, that's the scene they showed. Whereas like in the you know preview for next week, it's like, where's my baby? Where's my baby? And then in the episode, it's like, where's my baby? Right here, doctor. Thank you. You're like, uh, really? That was, <laughs> that was the dramatic tension moment? Rude. Well, let's be honest here. You don't like movies. You don't really watch TV anyway. Who the hell is surprised that you don't like the drama stuff? I'm not. You're right. I'm not. You're right. Um, but hi everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And this is not a dramatic podcast. We're not dramatic. I mean, we're dramatic in our own way. Yeah, as in you're a queen. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) what I mean. Um, but no, we're a true crime comedy podcast. Definitely some episodes have more of the comedy. Some episodes have like none of the comedy. (laughs) You know, yeah. we just play it by ear and, you know, just do our own thing. And this yeah. is episode 84. And we're here to just tell you about some murder. And we're getting so close to 100. We are scarily close to 100. Yeah, you guys just have to say, I can't even express how exciting it's been this year with how much the podcast has grown and how many more listeners we have. Like, this has now so far exceeded our expectations that I don't even know how to feel about it anymore. Like, other than I'm just, like, jovial. That means, like, really excited, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> it is all thanks to y'all for listening. I mean, literally, directly, because y'all listen. We have listeners. But the support we get from y'all and having y'all's listeners, I mean, that... 2019 has been a year of ups and downs, and that is one of the highest ups of my 2019. Same, same. A lot has changed this year, and, you know, we've always had this to come back to, and it's just been, I think, everything both of us needed, and I think there are some of you guys out there that are listening that maybe you needed something like this, too. Like, maybe you just needed mm-hmm. to listen to two, like, really nerdy and kind of annoying brother and sister. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you're the annoying one. I need speak for yourself. <laughs> but you just needed to hear us, like, babble back and forth about true crime because it's something that interests us both. And it's one of those things that connects us. And to be mm-hmm. honest, it's one of the things that connects a lot of our family even more so now we've gotten a lot more vocal it's like people in our family are like oh shit like everyone actually likes this let's talk about these murders and so (laughs) yeah it's just 
I don't know. You find people who are interested in things like true crime that you never would have imagined. And so I know doing this podcast, like, for example, I talked about this podcast in a job interview. Five years ago, Brittany... I actually did that recently, too. <laughs> yeah, five years ago, Brittany would have never done something like that. But 2019, Brittany was like, actually, yeah, you know what I do in my free time? I have a fucking podcast. It's about murder and wine. Yeah. <laughs> and and wine, but mostly murder. So, it's and like 30 minutes of wine, hour of murder. Well, and it's funny because um at work we have a group chat that we just call murder. It's where we share news articles and stuff and funny things, but mostly really well, that's, you know, horrific news articles. That's a uh in you know, might want to flag that to HR, but Oh, no, no, no. HR emails me her favorite new murder podcast. <laughs> so, um, oh, I love it. Yeah. Anyway, I uh, just wanted to like take a moment because seriously, we're getting closer to the end of the year and you guys are amazing and we love you. Yes, we do. And thank you all so, so much. And in the spirit of thanking people, I want to thank um, one of our newest Patreon supporters, Andrea Imbarato. She's our newest Chardonnay Syndicate. Thank you so, so much for uh, supporting us, for joining our Patreon community. Uh, we hope you're enjoying all of our murder mini episodes, our bottle talk episodes. Yes, Andrea, welcome to the family. Also, it could be Andrea or Andrea, but I think both of you. Um, but if you want to get in on the murder minis, the bottle talks, and all of the extra special perks, check out our Patreon page and look at becoming a Patreon supporter. Yes, and while you're at it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can get our new episodes every Tuesday. You know the drill. Just make sure you've clicked subscribe. Do it. Well, as 2019 kind of winds down, we head into a new year that is also a new decade. Um, I kind of God for real, was, right? It's about to be the 2020s, which doesn't sound real. Um, but when I was picking the topic for this episode, I thought. You know, we're about to enter a new decade. Let's look at some decades. And then arbitrarily, I was like, hmm, 50 years ago. What happened in the 60s? Also, the 60s were 50 years ago, y'all. The late 60s. The 60s ended 50 years ago. Yeah, I was about to say 69 was 50 years ago. And in a couple of weeks, 70 was 50 years ago. So well, whatever. 60... We're looking back at the decade 50 okay. years ago. And that was the 60s. We, you know, the moon landing was doing its thing towards the end jfk was president at the beginning of it civil rights movement the women's rights movement lots of things happened in the 60s lots of movements lots of amazing things and lots of really not so amazing and scary and horrible things as well yeah which happen every year so just gonna say i mean (laughs) absolutely but we've covered quite a few uh murders and serial killers different topics that did happen in the 60s but i want to take this time to look back 50 plus years ago and focus on some cases that happened in the 1960s and also if y'all like this episode we might do a you know decade series every few episodes we'll do 70s 80s 90s I think we totally should because, number one, it's a pretty overarching topic that makes it a lot easier to find a case, which, to be totally honest, I say that, but the reality was I actually had a difficult time finding this um, because 
like you were saying, we've already done so many cases that happened in the 60s yeah. that I was like, okay, a uh, case in 1963, 1964, and just go by searching year as my like listen base ground, like first point. So there are Wikipedia lists for like murders in X country in X year, and you can just find like a collated list of each of them. Um, obviously, it does not have all of them. It has some big high-profile ones that have Wikipedia pages, but that's where I started. Did not find my case from there, but still. I saw the list you're talking about. Also didn't find mine there, but you know. <laughs> um, well, how about before we, you know, just like an idea, maybe. I don't I don't know if you what you're going to think of this, but maybe we should like drink some wine before we talk about the murders. Oh my gosh, I've never had wine before. I don't even know what that is. But uh, I guess I have a bottle right next to me that I could talk about. I mean, me too. So do you want to hear about mine? I guess I do. <laughs> okay. So this one that I got, um, it's a white wine. And you can see this bottle is like short and fat. Yeah, that is an interesting shape. It I It looks like a whiskey bottle or something. <laughs> oh, it is. I actually am doing a bottle of whiskey. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, don't. <laughs> It, so it's the 2018 Cellar de Vigne Prestige from the Côte Rhone Appellation in France. So this is a bottle from Trader Joe's. And to be honest, I had a really hard time fin- finding any information about it. But when I looked at, looked up this wine, one that one winery that kept coming up was the Cellar de Dauphine Winery, which has been around since 1967 in Southern Rhone Valley. But that winery name is not on this bottle. You could just, it's probably one of those Trader Joe's relationships that we've talked about Mm -hmm. where they change like one word or whatever. But I I, I shit you not, the labels are nearly identical. The bottles are the same. There's like a red, a white. This is the white one. So that might be a lie. But I think that it's from Cellar de Dauphine. But I've never had a white wine from the Coderone appellation in France. I'm used oh. to Coderone meaning like a red wine to me, but that's just their red varietal. And so this white wine, it's very aromatic with notes of stone fruits and flowers. And then it's going to reveal this like very elegant freshness. And um, it's got some tangy touches. It pairs really well with chicken and mushroom sauce. And it's a little bit stronger for your whites. It's a 13% and it was six bucks. So I'm really excited to try this wine. Like I said, I really couldn't find much information about it. When I taste it, I'll dive in a little bit more if I think it's along the lines of a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Noir or nope, it's not going to be like a Pinot Noir. (laughs) I was like, I don't, I don't think that one. (laughs) And if it is, wow. If it is. Then that means I took some of those uh, taste bud pills before the episode. No. Uh, I want to do that. No, you don't. That's going to ruin wine. Um, no, if if it tastes like a Pinot Grigio or like a Chardonnay, I'll let you know when I taste it. But I'm going to go ahead and open this up. So I can tell as I'm screwing this wine cork in that it's probably one of those plastic corks. Just the way it feels going. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Let's. Oh, it is. All nice. right. I looked at the cork, but it's a white wine. I don't know why I did that. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. Okay, well, I'm going to get into my wine. Today, I am drinking the 2018 Indomita Gran Reserva Pinot Noir from the Casablanca Valley in Chile. 
it's a, there's a lot of words in that. There's a lot of <laughs> um, words in that. But yeah, it's the Grand Reserva, which to me says it's going to be amazing. So that's what I'm looking forward to. But the Casablanca Valley in Chile, it is a wine growing region there. It's kind of in the middle of the country, about 60 miles north of Santiago, the capital of Chile. And it's most known for its Sauvignon Blanc and its Chardonnay wines, but it is also a great region for Pinot Noir. And I also could not find a ton of information on this wine. I found a little bit. Um, It is described as having these roasted, smoky aromas that push oak-based clove notes. It's a very full-bodied, blocky Pinot Noir that almost tips the scales in the direction of being a heavy wine, which is interesting for a Pinot Noir. Um, Honestly, it reminds me of the Mayomi Pinot Noir from a few episodes ago. I've been drinking so much of that at work. We always have it for our happy hours. I love that Pinot Noir. I never so thought good. I would love a Pinot Noir this much. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is far and away my favorite Pinot Noir. So if this is similar full body to that, I'm excited. Um, the flavors are like roasted medicinal berry and plum flavors. And then it ends with an almost salty note with oaky clove, which to be honest, roasted medicinal berry and plum and ending with a salty note kind of sounds shit. <laughs> like the salty like note is weird wine. to me yeah um salt wine we will see um it also it pairs well with beef veal poultry and i'm assuming a bacon cheeseburger <laughs> duh um but i'm gonna get this open and i'm using a different wine opener because my foil cutter is officially dead yay that new foil cutter worked so well i know I forget you have this weird wine opener, too. It's like one from Ikea, where Mm. you just keep spinning, and it goes into the cork, and then it comes out. Oh, there we go. And you almost rip the top of your bottle off if you do what Tyler did. (laughs) While you pour your wine, I looked up, uh, you know, something I should have done before I started uh, talking about my wine, but to see what type of white grape varietals are actually in the Coderone area. To give myself at least a guide before I start like spitting out wine names that are going to be wrong because I don't know all the wines in the Côte d'Iron region or white wines in France besides like Viognier. Um, Fair. <laughs> so a few of them are the Grenache Blanc, the Marsan Roussan, the Bor... Bor... Yeah, you're the one who speaks French. I can't help you there. Borboulenc, uh, Viognier, and the Picpoul Blanc. So, which, side note, I first had the Picpoul Blanc at Binding Branch, and that's the one I bought a bottle of, brought it home. Oh, oh yeah. That was, that was honestly, for um an oakier, heavier white, because y'all know I don't like the oaky, the buttery Chardonnay, the Picpoul Blanc, I was like, this might be the first um oaky white that I have loved. I know. You really so liked good. that one, and I was shocked. And so was our friend she was surprised you Mm -hmm. liked it too so now that we have our wine i think we should cheers i think we should too cheers cheers so i need to think about mine a little bit more so i'm gonna let you go first tell me about yours well i don't know what the hell this reviewer is talking about because (laughs) i'm not getting any of these like heavy oak notes or the clove 
it's definitely heavier bodied than a normal Pinot Noir, which is very light. But this is solid on the light to medium. I would never say this is full bodied. Again, the medicinal berry I'm not tasting. It's a very quick wine. Um, You know, once you swallow, the flavor's gone. It has some general red fruit flavors. Honestly, it doesn't taste like a whole lot. It's one that is a very easy drinking wine, but eh. Honestly, you'll have to let me know what you think in like 10 minutes or so when it's breathed a little more. That's true. Maybe to open up some of those flavors. I mean, it sounds like it's still going to be your light to medium bodied Pinot Noir. Like, Yeah. You I mean, think. it's one of those, if you like Pinot Noirs, you would probably like this one. Would you say Pinot Noirs are ones that you enjoy more when you're eating than you do alone? I don't know why I always think about that, but I feel like Pinot Noir is a really good food pairing wine. I think it depends. I think generally Pinot Noirs pack less punch of flavor, so it does go well with things, whereas by itself it can almost taste kind of watery. Yeah. Whereas, like, you don't usually have that issue with most cabs. They're a lot more <gasps> on the tongue. So in that way, yeah, I could see it pairing well with food, but I, I would think you'd have to be careful that your food doesn't completely overpower it and it's like you're just tasting red water. Ooh, red water. That's the name of my new vineyard. I know, I was about to say, that's your winery. That's it. That's mm-hmm. that's it. That's the one. Okay, so let me try to tell you about this wine. I feel like I want to say it probably has some Viognier in it, but to be completely honest, that could be because that's the grape of the list that I read that I'm most familiar with. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of sad now that I looked at the list because... Honestly, I would have said this could be like a Chardonnay, which is why the Viognier, because I told you how they really remind me of one another, the Viognier and the yeah. Chardonnay. I, I think that's why. So I would probably have guessed Chardonnay. Um, but it definitely has a, that tartness. And I think that's the tangy notes that it's talking about on the back that are a little bit more like like key lime, like from a Sauvignon huh. Blanc. Um, it's a little bit of a heavier white. So that's what another reason I lean towards Chardonnay. It's not super light, like a Pinot mm-hmm. Grigio um, or a Sauvignon Blanc. It's not that light. It has a lot more body to it, but it's definitely a combo of something. Um, I'm enjoying it. White wines are generally not my favorite. I've opened up a lot more to them, though, this year. Mm-hmm. This one's good, but I know some other white wines that I personally like more. But if you're looking for a different white wine, maybe you're a Chardonnay drinker and you don't really branch out from that, go ahead and give something like this a try. Um, and I'll we'll have a picture of it on our Instagram. I was about to say on our podcast. We'll have a picture <laughs> on our Instagram, but it's the Cellar de Vigne, V-I-G-N-E-S, Prestige, the 2018 Cote Rhone. And you'll notice it by the bottle because it's like short and fat. I mean, it's almost like Maker's Mark shaped. It's not, like, not to that extent. But nearly. But, yeah. It's okay. not It's not sweet. I'll, I'll give it that. That's good. Which I, I enjoy. Again, more like a shard. All right. Well, we both have our wines. We have our topic. We both have cases in front of us, but I'm going to let you go first and tell me about your case from the 1960s. You're going to let me go first. Thank I'm gonna you. I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> I'll allow it. You'll allow it. So the case that I did was from 1965, and it's the murder of Elsie Frost. 
I used um, a few sources. Honestly, a lot of them were articles from the BBC. I used like three to four of them. And I don't want to say the titles of any of them. They just give too much away. I looked at the Wikipedia page, The Murder of Elsie Frost, and then also this article from a website called Life Death Prizes, which scares me a lot, but it had information. Okay. <laughs> so not not sure how reputable that is, which is why I used a lot from BBC. So on Saturday, October 9th, 1965, Elsie was 14 years old, and she was setting off uh, to home on the outskirts of Wakefield, which is in Yorkshire, England. She'd spent the afternoon at the Snapesthorpe School's Sailing Club, which is, that is very much a tongue most, twister. <laughs> that is the most English thing I have heard in a long time. Honestly, not gonna lie, proud of myself for getting through that without yeah. messing that up. So I'm gonna like mess some sentence up like at right now this moment. Um, uh-huh. So she left the Sailing Club and... She was walking along a flooded gravel quarry next to the Calder and the Heavy Canal, which is somewhere there in Wakefield. So she and her friends left between 3.50 and 4 p.m. And she took a slightly different route from the others. She was really trying to avoid this partially flooded tunnel. Smart. You should avoid a partially flooded tunnel. I know, and I don't think it was, like, waist deep or anything, but she was dressed really nice. She had on this bright red jacket, a yellow cardigan, and a really pretty floral skirt. And so, a lot of colors. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being colorful. Uh, You're right, you're right. So Elsie was walking along the canal towpath. And this is also because she had some new leather shoes on, so she probably didn't want to get those muddy. So again, she's wearing nice clothes, got some new shoes... She doesn't want to walk in the flooded tunnel. Don't want to get I mean, everything wet. I relate. Unfortunately, while she was walking through this tunnel, she was attacked. It happened when she was underneath a railway line that runs between Wakefield Kirkgate, the railway station, and Horbury. After the attack, she made it through the underpass and she ended up collapsing at the bottom of the ABC steps. They were known locally as the ABC steps because there were 26 of them. And there are 26 letters in the English alphabet. Yeah, that's... Who picked that? What do we name these? Well, how many are there? Huh, well, there's one, two... 26. Hmm. Where does that lead us? Well, there's 26 letters in the alphabet. The ABC stairs. You know, how people in England sound. Sure. I don't know why they call it that either. But these are the ABC stairs. Okay. And at around 4.12 p.m., so she hadn't been there long, she was found by a man who was walking with his three- and five-year-old children. They were just outside going for a walk. Elsie had been stabbed five times, twice in the head, once in the hand, and twice in the back. With one of these knife wounds, it, it pierced her heart, and that's what caused her death. Oh, baby. The wound on her hand led the police to believe that it was sustained while she was trying to defend herself. So obviously it's a pretty distinct or a pretty um, common defense defensive wound. Yeah. And the postmortem showed that Elsie had died of shock and blood loss. So as the investigation begins, over 1,200 written statements were taken. 400 people who lived within about a fourth of a mile uh, radius from the murder scene were traced and they had their movements checked 
Over 12,000 men were interviewed, and a large number of knives belonging to local residents were examined. So the police are just, they're going on very little evidence. And so they're searching that radius, they're interviewing people, they're looking at people's knives, because obviously she was stabbed, and I think, you know, the coroner can tell that it's a knife wound. Despite an intense police inquiry coupled with national coverage this manhunt was the biggest that the city of wakefield had ever seen so here in 1965 however the police were unable to establish a motive for the crime or if elsie was even the intended victim maybe she was just a passerby who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time they they have nothing And so the manhunt that the police were doing, they expanded it and they started using the army and they were using metal detectors because they didn't even have the murder weapon. Again, like I said, they had literally nothing. So in January 1966, the deputy coroner, Philip Gill, he was presiding over the inquest into Elsie's death. He decided that Ian Bernard Spencer, who was 33 years old at the time, 33 years old at the time, was the man that was guilty of killing Elsie. Okay. Spencer maintained that although he was in the area of Elsie's death earlier in the day, he was at home when she was murdered. Like, at that time, he was at home and his wife corroborated that story. His mother-in-law and a family friend and three other witnesses said this as well, but none of them were ever called to give evidence on his behalf during the inquest. That's sketch, but that's also a lot of people to know you're at home alone. Or like, oh, they're at home. I mean, you could, you know that I'm home alone right now. I don't think anyone else have questioned, be like, where was Tyler at, you know, 830 today? I'd be like, I don't know, probably home. I know, it'd be my assumption. I'm just saying, that's a lot of, that's like eight people who are like, yes, can confirm, was home. Yeah, I mean, seriously. And apparently... In England, until 1984, a coroner's inquest could allocate blame and guilt, and they could recommend criminal proceedings to be brought against an individual. And this is what happened to Spencer. How is the coroner going to know? Like, you know, they're seeing the wounds, they're going over the victim. I mean, that to me, that seems that seems like a weird system to be in place. I, same. And to be honest, I don't know a lot about how inquiries go in in england especially in the 60s i mean this is not something i'm as well informed as as we are with things here in the states but this is what the the coroners could do then and the coroner in lc's case stated that there was sufficient prima facie um f-a-c-i-e evidenced against spencer which that meant this like at first glance evidence that made him look guilty and so oh, I I thought it was a really pretty name, Prima Fossi. I could see her in a movie. Prima Fossi. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um but no, that's literally just like the oh, at at first glance, what evidence we do have, it shows that he's he could be totally guilty of this. And you know, he looks guilty, which I'm just like, okay, I mean, so did every com- with this, it's like every man in the vicinity did then. So even though Ian Spencer had been cleared by two courts with one judge instructing a jury to acquit, police would still routinely turn up at the Spencer family home 
whenever there had been a knife crime in the area, they just... Oh, my God. They wouldn't let it go for his entire life. And so, Spencer, he started writing things down. He would write down what time he left one place and then the time he arrived to the next. He would include his mileage. He had traveled. So, I mean, they drove him to feel like he had to document every moment of his life. That's nightmarish. And all the while, you know, he's been cleared. They're putting all of this, all of these resources into like watching him every time someone gets stabbed. Why aren't you looking for Elsie's killer? Like, why aren't you expending this energy, this amount of money and force and stuff into looking into this case? Or why aren't you looking into who actually did those stabbings? You know, like these other cases. And so Ian Spencer carried on creating these logbooks throughout his entire working life and even into retirement. And the Frost family was convinced at the time that Spencer had nothing to do with Elsie's death. So Elsie's mother, Edith Frost, stated... I know what Mr. Spencer and his wife must have suffered. I am glad for their sake it is over. I am sure they will be as anxious as I am to have the killer found. But this is when the case just went completely cold. Which, to be honest, it's not like it was warm in the first place. They don't have anything, and they were blaming someone who had nothing to do with it. No, they were putting all of their, like, focus on this one guy, because the coroner was like, Mmm, I think it's him. And the courts were like, it's not. And then the courts again were like, yo, it's not. And the police were like, "Mm, but what if? All the while, everyone's like, okay, but where's the murderer? It's ridiculous. Yeah. And Elsie's family never gave up. So there was a lot of pressure for years from Elsie's brother and sister. Her sister, Annie Cleave, and her brother, Colin Frost. And then one day... Coverage of the murder was on an investigative BBC Radio 4 program. This prompted the West Yorkshire police to reopen the case in 2015, 50 years after the killing. So when Elsie was killed, Colin was only six years old and Anne was 18. This new investigation in 2015 produced a hundred lines of inquiry. And this was a response that the police found really encouraging. Like, whoa, a hundred tips? From 50 years ago, too. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, who's been not talking for 50 yeah, years? Yeah, but also, where were those tips five decades ago? Well, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like, who who was keeping yeah. silent and why? So the major investigation review team was staffed by serving officers as well as civilians, most of whom were retired detectives. The review team disclosed that most of the original files from 1965 had actually been destroyed, which really, of course they had been. really sucks. That always sucks. But this, it happens. It happens in cases that are so long, you know, either the, the records weren't kept well, they were thrown away, they were disposed of because it's like, well, it was never going to be solved. And so they were purposefully gotten rid of. There are so many different ways you can misplace information. Uh. I hate that. I do too. So after this program was aired on Radio 4, several listeners gave accounts of what they had seen leading to this fresh evidence and new theories. Members of the public submitted a Freedom of Information Act um, and request to the National Archives for the murder files. But these murder files for Elsie were not due to be opened until 2030 and 2060. Why? 
Requests were denied on the grounds that the police files, they had names of other suspected individuals other than the man, other than Ian Spencer, who was sent to trial in 1966. So it's for privacy and any release into the public domain of this information. It could have harmed any future criminal criminal proceedings if those names were to get out because these people maybe didn't even know. Um, and there were yeah. like that they were a suspect. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, there are laws in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to, like, identifiable data. I know, like, with the census, any personally identifiable data is held for, I think, 80 years. And then it's, like, able to be looked at when, like, anyone it matters to is dead. Let's be real. It makes sense. But damn. I know. And another reason they didn't want to release these files, again, like I said, her brother and sister had been super adamant for this whole 50 years to try to get this case solved. Well, in the files, there were notes and postmortem images and reports that could be really distressing to the immediate family. And so also for their protection, when they requested it, they're like, no. I don't like that. I feel like the family should get to decide that. Well, but the thing is, all of this information is together in one place. So it's not like they can release the images and leave the rest of the stuff back. I don't think it works that way. No, and and that's fair. But I feel like if they had just given the privacy reason, like, okay, cool. But to also add, like, "Mm," and also you don't need to see this. It's like, fuck you. Don't tell me what I do and don't need to see. No, I mean, it's true. It's true. They should be able to see these things if they want, but still locked away. It was, however, revealed during this Radio 4 show that Elsie's clothes had been offered to the family, but when the offer was declined, the clothes were then destroyed by the police. So, I know, despite there being no knowledge of the science of DNA in 1965, this them getting rid of these clothes effectively ended any hope of a possible DNA retrieval. So there were some theories about what happened to Elsie. One was that possibly she had stumbled across two men engaging in a homosexual act. And just as a note, homosexuality in Britain was illegal until 1967. So it still had a couple years of, you know, if these men were caught, it was risky. And if it's a child, like, oh, gosh, you might blab. I mean, this is a horrible Ugh. fucking theory. But other witnesses described seeing a man in his mid-twenties dressed in white overalls and on a bike. So this led to suggestions that the man could be a witness and maybe he was like a butcher's delivery boy or something, you know, because of the white overalls. And he was also gay? Or, oh, are they two different theories? Are they unrelated? Is the butcher's man gay? Is he single? <laughs> That's my main question. They're they're unrelated. He's just a potential witness. He's not one of the men that is potentially accused of this or, or like, oh. did it. He Okay. He's, like, a potential witness that could corroborate this theory. Who is just, like, riding his bike around? Delivering for the butcher. Oh. <laughs> Okay, that makes more sense. He was Amazon Prime, got it. Yes, Amazon Prime, 1969. Five, not nine. Another lead to this theory was offered up by a school acquaintance of Elsie's, who, as an adult, she was a nurse. And she heard this third-hand account of a man confessing in hospital to being Elsie's killer. This tied in with the homosexual act angle because the man apparently confessed to homosexual acts taking place, and that being the reason behind Elsie's death. This information was forwarded to the police. However, 
it was really unreliable because of its third-hand nature. Because she was basically like, so I heard from my friend Lucy and her friend Susan told her friend Jessica that this man said this. I don't know why I'm giving her this accent. That would be it's, like a- it's also, this is England, and so... Everyone who's English is actually from Georgia. <laughs> That's, I think, what we've learned in this episode. Yeah, it's actually a, a city of uh, Georgia, Georgia, right outside Atlanta. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, also, this man was allegedly under the influence of drugs when he made this confession. My big issue with this is, you know, okay, she's dicking along on the footpath. She's like, oh, I'm not gonna walk through the mud. I'm going to go on what I'm imagining is a, you know, like path across the quarry, whatever. So it's a place people walk. In the 60s, when being gay is illegal, two men are not going to fuck on a footpath. (laughs) Like, you, that's, that is why, you know, the deep in the woods in a park or in a bathroom glory hole or like that. That's why things like that became prominent and became culturally a thing in the gay community. Because the thing is, you don't want to get found by randos. Right. And so you're not going to be getting fucked on the sidewalk. Like, (laughs) are you fucking kidding me? It just, to me, sounds like some bullshit gay panic. Like, oh, this woman was murdered. We have no evidence. Twas the gays. Well, I hate to agree with that, but I do. I mean, that is very much a possibility. However, the good thing is... I mean, I would hate it more if you disagreed with it. (laughs) No, I know, but I'm just saying, thankfully, this was just a theory and not, like, people were brought in and blamed for this. Like, you know. See, this is why you need gay people on your team, because I promise you, if one of the cops in this, like, I don't know, round of theory bowl was gay, they would have been like... "Mm." No. If they wanted to have sex, they would have gone down to the Diamond Pony. Let's be real. If it was 1965, they wouldn't have said that. Okay, well, you uh, true. So another one of the theories is that Elsie was meeting someone in the days before her death, like she possibly had a boyfriend. Her father said that the night before she died, she went to the Balney Lane Youth Club in her best clothes. Rather than like her normal like stuff that she wore... And she asked to stay out later than usual. So she's 14. She's asking to stay out late. She's wearing her cute clothes that are, it's not what she normally goes out in. Her dad's like, oh, she's meeting with a boy. Like, ofs. Two things. First off, if she's 14, what's later than usual? 8.30. Second off, is a youth club just like the British version of a soda parlor since this is 1960? I have no idea. Maybe. I mean, I... Oh, maybe it's a bowling alley. I don't know. Oh, it has Lane in it. That's lame as shit. I mean, when I was 14, I definitely hung out at the bowling alley with my friends. But it's still lame. Looking back now, what, 12 years later, I was lame. <laughs> and that's making fashion. If somehow y'all made it to episode 85 without realizing Tyler sucked as a teen. <laughs> no, you didn't suck as a teen. You were a normal fucking teen. And all teenagers suck. It's true. Like, we're all, like, awkward and gangly and something's not going right because literally that's being a teenager. It's hard. And you're self-conscious about literally everything. I remember I was having trouble putting on socks. And I, like, 
almost cried because <laughs> my feet were giant. And I was like, I'm a fucking monster! And I'm like, why is that a thing? <laughs> that was me last week. <laughs> <laughs> that was me in the mirror this morning before I went to work. No, but like... Teenage years are really difficult. They really suck. And, like, they can be fun, but they're some of the most difficult years of your life. I mean, I, I tell you, adulthood can be pretty hard, too. But teenage uh, years I, I are know. hard I, in a different way. It is a different way. Being a teenager sucks. It does. You're going through some shit. You don't understand anything. You're both kind of an adult, and you're still a fucking child, and you don't know where you land, and... You're bigger and hairier and you're oilier and everything's awful. <laughs> Hair is growing in places it didn't used to. <laughs> but anyway, so just saying, that's that's one of the other theories. So now this brings us to 2016. So on September 27th, it was announced that the Thames Valley Police had arrested a 78-year-old man in connection with Elsie's death. Oh, fuck. But he was released on bail two days later. And his name, oh. his name was never released. Oh, bye. And then a few months later, about six months later, on March 6th, 2017, it was reported that the same man had been rearrested in connection with Elsie's death and that he was also being questioned in relation to an unconnected allegation of rape and kidnap from 1972. A year later, it was reported that the previously unnamed suspect was Peter Pickering. He was known as the Beast of Wombwell, or Wombwell, and he was convicted of the 1972 manslaughter of 14-year-old Shirley Boldly, or Boldy, in Wombwell. Wombwell, it's a really hard town name to say, Wombwell. Like Like a uterus where you gather water? Yeah, Wombwell. Okay, Wombwell, got it. (laughs) But it's one word. Um, so he was convicted of manslaughter of 14-year-old Shirley, and he served 45 years in prison. So he, like, served it, got out, and then they're like, mm, we're gonna arrest you again. What about this murder? Yeah, so there was some type of evidence that had law enforcement believe that he was responsible. However, the release of his identity also came with the news that Pickering had died in a secure hospital the previous day. He was 80 years old. At the time of his death, he was also awaiting sentence for kidnapping and raping an 18-year-old woman who's now in her 60s, just a few weeks before Shirley's abduction. Oh. When West Yorkshire police announced his death, they confirmed that Pickering was expected to be charged with the murder of 14-year-old Elsie. And Detective Superintendent Nick Wallen of the West Yorkshire Police said that they had strongly suspected that he was responsible and that it was their expectation that the Crown Prosecution Service service would have decided to charge him in due course. They just hadn't gotten to the point to where they could start these actions yet, and he died. In July 2018, it was revealed that the Frost family would be lobbying the Attorney General for a new inquest where they could ask about what what was this evidence against Pickering. Um, they wanted yeah. they wanted to look at it. Like, what did the police know? The family stated that they felt like very cheated and robbed by Pickering's death, and you know the fact that they knew he now would not ever go in front of a jury. So a new inquest would be the next best thing. Yeah. Their request was granted in December 2018. 
literally a year later, in November 2019, you know, so like just a couple weeks ago-ish. Just very recently. It finally happened. Previously, there had been evidence hidden from the Frost family, and they were hoping this inquest could help give them some answers. They knew Pickering was likely to be charged with Elsie's death, but they did not know why. And Elsie's older sister spoke of her anger that the case had been left in limbo following the exoneration of Ian Spencer in March 1966, because it left Pickering free to go on and murder 14-year-old Shirley um, Boldy and then kidnap and rape an 18-year-old woman in Wombwell in 1972. So it was a a little while before he was caught and, you know, served his time. But basically, for 50 years after Ian Spencer was exonerated, nothing happened. Yeah, they had no answers. And Anne and her brother, they were the ones that really pressed and pressed and got this case reopened in 2015. So this inquest that they had in November, it heard that police in Wakefield were sent a file on Pickering from the Metropolitan Police on October 13th, 1965, four days after Elsie was stabbed to death as she walked back from the sailing club event. On October 25th of that year, the force returned the file with a note that read, The file in respect of Peter Pinkering was forwarded to this office, making Pickering a likely suspect. Accordingly, extensive inquiries have been made, but Pickering has not yet been traced. So, like, literally, that was 12 days, and they sent the file, like, back with a note. And they were like, we can't find him. 12 days after it, they were like, we're eyeing him, and they are like, I don't know where he is. And they're like, well, case closed. Well, and they put his home in Wombwell under 24-hour surveillance. But they they didn't realize there was this person leaving, like leaving and coming back this entire time. It was actually Pickering dressed as a woman. But they didn't know that. They just thought it was someone else in that building. Are you fucking... Did they never go up to this person and be like, oh, we should question her? Uh, Excuse me, ma'am. Oh, Hold on, you're fucking pickering in a wig and a very nice long wool coat. You'll have to let me know where you got that. But it's you. They were just like, hmm, this is his house. This person's going in and out, but there she is. Well, no, they, they never did. And it was two months after this that Ian Spencer was charged. So a link was made to Pickering in Elsie's death when the police found two storage units containing documents written by the suspect over the previous 40 years, which appeared to incriminate him in Elsie's murder. So in all, the inquest found that Elsie was unlawfully killed, but since Pickering died, there's nothing more that can be done. So the family still has a lot of unanswered questions, and they don't feel like justice was served. Because literally the police back in the 60s had Pinkering like on their radar and it didn't pan out. And Pinkering was able to go on and kill another girl and to rape and kidnap another. And he did serve time, but he never served time for Elsie's death. See, and yeah, and that's the thing is that he was, you know, they were eyeing him 12 days after her murder. And yet he was free for seven years after her murder, before he finally went to jail for this. And like, yes, he was in jail for 45 years and wasn't on the streets. He was on the streets for seven years and in that time was able to kill someone and kidnap and rape someone. Yeah. So Elsie's death is one that 
definitely still plagues Yorkshire, England, or Yorkshire. Is it Yorkshire? I think it's Yorkshire. Yorkshire. So I was right the first time. So it really plagues Yorkshire, England. And, you know, it's one of their biggest, uh, up until recently, it was one of their biggest unsolved cases. And it's just come to light, like, literally, like, now, what all happened. And so there's more information that could come out. Those uh, files are still locked away. So there is more information out there. Although the files, maybe now that they they could be released because they've pretty much said that Pickering did it. But at the same time, there are still people's names in them. So it's, you know, it's going to be a long while. Because I guess if you look at it, if they don't come out till 2060, anyone who was in their 30s or 40s in 1965, they won't still be alive. And so their names can be released. But I mean, no, even if you were five years old, you'd be 100 when they come out. Yeah. So, so you go from toddling to literally being dead before they come out. Yeah, um, but that is the case of the murder of Elsie Frost, and it's a very, very frustrating case of, you know, what ifs, and oh, this could have happened, and oh, why didn't they do this? I can see why her family was just beyond frustrated, and unfortunately, both of her parents passed away without any type of resolution or answers, because, you know, they passed, and nothing had happened for years. Because Ian Ian Spencer was exonerated, and that was that. So tell me about your case. What case from the 60s did you discover? Did you you discover? (laughs) I discovered this, y'all. Like, (laughs) this was unknown. It was a missing persons case. And and I I solved it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you would try to bring the big guns, like... I, you know, I was, I just, you know, I'm actually going to be on Good Morning America tomorrow because I solved a 50-year-old murder. I didn't. Um, It'd be cool if we did. Would be. Honestly, ultimate goals of the podcast is that somehow the information we collate for our case or like our banter and discussion at the end leads to, I don't know, solving a case. Don't think it'll ever happen, but that would be fucking cool. You never know what could happen nowadays, to be totally I honest. Mean, that is true. But um, anyway, my case, it's one that is horrible from the name on. So this is the case of the Starved Rock Murders. I hate it already. Just don't even tell yeah, me. it's not good. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear about this. No, okay. Well, you're going to. All right. Um, the sources I used, I'm also not going to name uh, titles because we don't spill that kind of tea here. Uh, but I used an article from the Chicago Tribune by Christy Gutowski, another article from the Chicago Tribune by Corey Rumor, and then uh, the website American Hauntings. So let's time travel. Let's go all the way back to March of 1960. Oh, so, beginning of the decade. I know, basically 60 years ago. These three friends, Mildred Lindquist, Lillian Oetting, and Francis Murphy, I think they're in their, like, 40s or 30s. They're, like, middle-aged. They're three best friends, and they're like, let's vacate together. So they're driving down the highway. I'm imagining a convertible. I'm imagining heaven is a place on earth blaring on the radio, even though that doesn't come out for another 40 years. And they have their hands up, they're wearing scarves, they're having a girl's time, and it's wonderful. I'm picturing Thelma and Louise just because this is a murder podcast, and just gonna imagine. Okay, I've never seen Thelma and Louise, so... 
that's not what I'm imagining. Also, there's three of them. Don't forget Francis. I'm not forgetting them, but also, you really have got to see that movie. It is a classic for a reason. It is so good. You would like it. Is that the one where they drive into the Grand Canyon at the end? Well, now you just spoiled it for everyone. Okay, well, I'm... I, I think that's something literally everyone knows. <laughs> um, I think that's the same thing as being like, yeah, in, you know, the end of the It's a Wonderful Life, where he's like on the bridge and being like, I want to go back. I don't think that's spoiling. I think everyone knows that. Okay, well, I haven't seen that one, but. <laughs> okay, well, that, there's a scene in it at some point that is what I just described. <laughs> um, I've never seen it either. Also, I've never seen um the, uh, uh, fuck. That's the with Julie Andrews, Sound of Music. I've never seen that, and my friend at work got very angry that I have not seen it. <laughs> Did they just like stop talking to you for the day? Yes. <laughs> I mean, like confront me to my face, like I cannot believe you have not seen this. And I was like, holy shit, this is actually a thing. You're offended. You know what? Be offended. I will never see it. Because also, I just, I, I'm sure it's a great movie. I love Julie Andrews. I have seen Princess Diaries, uh, you know, because that's her, that is her peak of acting. Yeah, you know, that's what but, she's known for. But I'm sure it's great. Great story. Great songs. I'm good. Yeah, this has been um, our section we like to call Tyler Doesn't Know How to Consume Entertainment. So, anyways, back to March of 1960. Mildred, Lillian, and Francis are um, going on a girls' trip. They are driving from, they live in the nice uh, suburbs of Chicago. They're like these wealthy women um, that are married, and they're like, girls' trip. They um, are headed to a four-day holiday at the Starved Rock Park, which is a national park that's like, like an hour outside Chicago. So the three of them met at church, and they had been kind of anxious but excited about going on this trip together. And Lillian, she'd spent the entire winter nursing her husband after he had a heart attack. So she is, like, above all of it, she is looking forward to some fucking vacation with her friends. Totally. So they get to the lodge they're staying at, they unload their luggage, they take it to their rooms... And then they're like, let's go to lunch at, like, the restaurant that's at the lodge. Ladies who lunch. Honestly, it sounds so far, I'm like, I would absolutely join y'all on this trip. I know, it's like, do you need an even number? I will join. I want to go on a trip with my friends to a state park, go to a lodge that has, like, a lunch spot. I'm like, fuck yes. They're, because they're planning on doing some hiking, bird watching, just being outdoors. They're in the Chicago suburbs, so they're like, eh. Let's get out of the city, girls. And then Shania Twain plays while they drive down the road in 1960. Anyway, they're at lunch. And afterwards, they're like, it looks great outside. Let's go for a hike. They grab the camera, the binoculars. They decide to go on a hike. It's March in Illinois, which apparently in 1960 means it was kind of snowy. Didn't know that, first of all. Neither did I. I think March, I think starting to get warmish totally i don't know if it's because i've never been to illinois in march or because you know global warming but it was snowy and it was normal that it was snowy um so that's the scene i'm setting so they're walking on the trails taking photographs and lillian who it's not her camera but she's like doing the take picture she's kind of struggling she's kind of taking some shitty pictures but whatever it's fine they're having a girl's trip they're having fun 
and then they're never heard from again. I don't know why I didn't assume the first second you said they were going to a park and that they were going to go hiking and bird watching that 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 meant they were going to disappear. I I missed that. It, that was totally obvious. It's because they're hiking, so you expect them to find the body. Oh no. That is not what happened. I was thinking they were the victims from the get-go. I just didn't think um, of the fact that they would be missing. So, they're in the state park and it's like wilderness. Yeah. So the first sign that anything is wrong is that evening when George, who is Lillian's husband, he tried, you know, calling. He wants to see, hey, how's everyone doing? Because she'd promised to call him that night and she hadn't. So he's like, okay, well, I'll call you. And he calls him. The staff answers the phone because it's 1960. So you call the hotel, I guess. And they're like... Oh, we'll bring her right up to reception. So, I don't know what the fuck. It's, I don't know what the 60s were. But he calls them, the staff answers, and they're like, oh, sorry, she's like not available. He's like, uh, okay, but where is she? And they're like, oh, well, she's like not answering the door to her hotel room. So they probably like, I don't know, went out for the evening. We saw her at lunch with her friends. And, you know, she'll probably call you in the morning. Wow. And he's like, oh, okay. Staff, fair. Staff's quite flippant the way you're making them sound. Well, I mean, to be fair, at this point, the staff, they, they're like, oh, yeah, they had lunch here. We saw them. We knocked on their door. They're not answering, but they're on vacation. It's girls trip. Right. Like, it, we don't expect them to be so, at the hotel. Yeah. Also, bitch, we're hotel workers, not alarm clocks. Like, she'll call you when she calls you. We're babysitters. I don't know many alarm clocks that uh, make people <laughs> aware of your where you are. It's called a cell phone. <laughs> I don't know. That's my alarm clock. 2019 humor. Uh, okay. Anyway, so he's not worried, though. He's like, mm, you're right. She probably will call in the morning. On Tuesday morning, he calls again. And he's like, yo, never heard from my wife. Can I chat with her? And they're like, oh, we saw the three of them at breakfast. Um, but they're, you know, they're not in their rooms. They weren't at breakfast. They got them mixed up. Oh, they thought... I see your confused face. Yeah, the employees were confused. Or I get, they didn't know they were confused kind of thing. Right. But they probably just saw another group of three women and they were like, oh, there they are. Because again, they are their hotel staff. They're not responsible for knowing all the movements of everyone in the hotel and whatnot. It's like, no. that's not what they do. Well, the thing is, their interaction at this point had probably been like five minutes of like, hi, we're here to check in. Right. So again... They're not in their room, but we saw them at breakfast. So he's probably just like, shit, okay. Lillian is having a girl's trip with no boys. Not even on the phone. Okay. But he's like, whatever. That night, though, a blizzard hits the area where the National Park is. There's a shit ton of snow. The roads are, like, impassable. And so George, the next morning, is like, "Uh uh-uh, shit's not okay. So he calls again. And again, his wife, her friends could not be located. And he's like, okay, y'all motherfuckers enter their goddamn room. I don't care if they're like, you know, hungover as shit, sleeping. Cool. Let me know. Enter their fucking room. I'll pay for whatever. Like, I don't care. Yeah. I have not heard from my wife in this long. And there was a fucking blizzard. So the hotel employees, they get in the room and the beds and bags were untouched. No one had been sleeping in these rooms, and no one had even unpacked. They, um, the employees then were like, hmm, that's weird. Are they not even here? They go to the parking lot. The car is still there. They tell this to George, and he's like, 
holy shit, my wife and her friends, they've been gone for like two days. They've been missing. And he, it's not like he was ignoring them either. You know, he was trying to get a hold of his wife. Yeah. And so they call the police, law enforcement gets there, and within minutes, like, it is news in the area among, like, police departments and sheriffs and stuff. Like, these rich wives are missing, basically. Yeah. And so search parties were basically immediately set out. And this is the night after a blizzard. So there's fresh snowfall everywhere. And it's cold. Covering lots of things. Also, it's cold as shit. So while this is happening, a newspaper reporter is driving up to the um, lodge because he hears of this story. And these Boy Scouts... Um, or scouts, I don't know if they were actually Boy Scouts, are like shouting and waving at him as he's driving up to the lodge. And he's like, hmm, what's this? So he gets out of the car, he goes to them, and he's like, yo, what's up? Why are you flagging me down? And they lead him to the bodies of the three women. Oh my god. Wait, they found him that quickly? This wasn't search parties. These were like scouts, like Boy Scouts that were camping. Oh. And had like stumbled upon them. These are like 12-year-olds, basically. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, it's fucking horrifying. And so the first, like, I guess, real adult, I mean, like, I'm sure the troop leaders or whoever saw the bodies, but the first, like, adult with authority was this reporter who then notified the police. Oh, my God. The three women, they were lying side by side, and they were partially covered in snow. They're on their backs under this, like, small ledge. And their pants, skirts, their, like, lower half had been torn away, and their legs had been spread open. Each of them had been beaten in the head, and two of the women were tied together with this, like, twine. And they were covered in blood and bruises. Oh my god. So, obviously, I mean, with their pants being removed, their legs being spread, there was some kind of, like, fucked up sexual element to the crime, But because of the cold and because it was 1960, they weren't able to find any evidence of rape. Right. But the doctors were able to determine that these women died pretty quickly after lunch. And they had no motive or reason. It wasn't robbery because they still had money and jewelry and the camera on them. It's just they were on their afternoon hike and murdered. So they were barely on their hike though if it had only been a little bit after lunch they just had their ladies at lunch and they went for their first hike and that was that yeah i mean it maybe was a couple hours in maybe one because they had pictures on the camera but it's not like they had even been gone that long right so immediately the investigation basically went nowhere there wasn't that much clues there wasn't much to find so the investigators interviewed all of the um, employees to the lodge, gave them polygraph tests. Everyone passed. And they're like, fuck, in that exact tone. <laughs> uh, and then so they're like, okay, we need to relook at this evidence. Obviously, we're missing something. So they look at the twine that was uh, binding the two, two of the women together and realize that like there were two different types of twine that were used. Interesting. One was a 20-ply cord and one was a 12-ply cord, which I guess how many strings are in the... I don't know. One was 20 and one was 12. Yeah, I'm sure that that's, means one was a, a lot thing. thicker. The 20 was probably thicker and the 12... Or, or vice yeah. versa. Yeah. So the investigators, they took the twine and they went to the lodge and they were like, hey... 
does this, does anyone recognize this? And the owner of the lodge was like, yeah, actually, we use that twine in the kitchen. Yes. Oh my God. Brittany's face went. (gasps) (laughs) It did because that's like a quick, like you just walk in the lodge. Hey, do you happen to recognize this twine? Yeah. We use that on the, you know, whatever types of meats you roll up and tie. Mm -hmm. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's the thing that like, to anyone else that's just twine, to someone who, you know, works here and sees it every day, they're like, oh, yeah, that's that twine. Also, at this point, it's September. I mean, like, six months has passed um, since the murders. Very impressive that they recognize the twine then. Why did it take them six months? Well, because basically there wasn't anything. And it took took a while for someone to be like, let's relook at the evidence. Wow, that just is surprising to me that it took him six months to be like, let's go ask the lodge where they were staying if they've seen this twine. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that is like a really random question, but it's not, clearly. Exactly. So they asked. They found out that it was from the kitchen. And basically this means that whoever killed them either worked at the kitchen or at least had access to the kitchen. Yeah. So that, I mean, it narrows it down. But again, they've already given everyone who works at the lodge a polygraph test, and everyone passed. So they were like, you know what? Let's test everyone again. It literally had to be someone who was there, so it has to be someone we already interviewed. And that's how they come to a 21-year-old man named Chester Otto Weger. He's this, like, small dude. He has a wife and two kids, and he worked at the lodge as, like, a dishwasher. And he'd worked until that summer. So again, this is September. He'd quit in the summer to go work uh, with his dad uh, as being like a house painter. Oh, right. And I say, oh, right, as if I'm like, oh, yeah, no, house painting. That's what you totally do after your dishwasher. Obviously. Uh I mean, it's the same career path. Uh, No. Step up. But. On a ladder. Did you just say on a ladder? I did. (laughs) All right. Podcast canceled. I'm out. (laughs) Let me have this. (laughs) Uh-huh. It was my dad joke of the day. D-J-O-T-D. It requires me to pour more wine is what it means. Did the... F- oh, you just filled that up again to the very top. It's a top. small glass. It's a small glass. D- Let me have this. Did uh, your flavor... Glass of wine. <laughs> did the flavor ever open up at all? Actually a little bit. But still pretty flat. It's a meh wine. Yeah. But your face was just... You're like trying to be like... Ah. Yeah, yeah, it's good, but your face is like, no, it's okay. It's the kind of wine that someone might pick to be uh, the red wine at an open bar at their wedding. Wow, you just insulted a lot of people. Um. (laughs) But you know exactly what I mean. Yeah, where it's just- Where you're like, this will please everyone because it's offensive to no one because it has- very little characteristics. Yeah. No, I totally get that. It's just like, oh, cool. This is a red wine. I mean, that's that's how I would describe this is it's a red wine. Um, I'm going to drink the whole bottle. Probably won't buy it again. But yeah. again, I think if you like Pinot Noir, you'd like this. Anyway, we're past the wine part. I know. Back to... Listeners don't care. <laughs> back to... They're like, all right, yeah, wine, whatever. We heard it. We skipped it already. But <laughs> tell me about the murder. Y'all did. We... Don't sidetrack me again. We know some of y'all did. Don't even pretend you didn't skip about the first 20 minutes. But hey, it's fine. We love you anyway. Yes. So 
They are chatting with Chester Weger, and they're like, yo, we're interviewing you again. He takes his polygraph test, and the investigators talk to the examiner after, and the examiner's paces fail. Wow. Mm -hmm. The examiner's face is pale. Oh, I was really confused what you were trying to tell me. (laughs) Yeah, his pace, it's like pale. Like, fuck him. Like, like... (laughs) He's slow. (laughs) Is too slow. He needs to pick up the pace. Each polygraph test is taking nine <laughs> hours. Uh, no, his face is pale. And as soon as Wigger leaves, he's like, y'all, that's your man. That is the person who did this. From a polygraph? So they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I know. Nowadays, we know that polygraphs are some bullshit. Still used today, but realistically used because... People think people don't know that they're fake and are used to elicit confessions to be like, mm, you failed your polygraph. And they're like, I did it. But y'all, I'm just saying, if anyone is ever like, we're going to put you up to a lie detector, feel free to be like, okay, it's not admissible to court. And then you might put more suspicion on yourself, but <laughs> just say it's not admissible in court. It's really, it's not bullshit. anymore. Mm-mm. And also, because one of the big things is, if you're a nervous person, you might fail it. I mean, I would totally fail it. Are you kidding me? My heart would be racing so much. I would be like sweating and scared and nervous. And like my anxiety would be out the ass. Like <laughs> maybe literally. Well, I don't also, know. And also, on the other hand, if you're like a sociopath who doesn't have empathy and doesn't get nervous and emotional like that. And you can be like, no, I didn't murder her at all. You're going to pass. True. So, yeah, they're not admissible in court. So, just saying. Not reliable. So, the investigators start looking into Werner, or Weger, not Werner. Like, Time Warner? Yes. They started looking into Comcast. (laughs) Uh, No. Um, They started looking into Wegner more, and at first, Wegner's, he's cooperating. He's like, oh, totally. And then he has this jacket, it's like a leather jacket that he owned, and it has these dark stains on it. And he he tells him, he's like, I do have this jacket that has these stains on it, but like, don't worry about it. And they're like, why are you telling us this? Obviously now we're suspicious. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna need to see that jacket. Basically. I mean, again, it's 1960, so DNA and stuff's not a thing. But obviously they're suspicious, they test it, and they're like... Yeah, that's blood. They can, they can still tell it's blood. So before they test it, because I guess it takes a while. It's the 60s. Yeah. I don't know. It's barely the 60s also. It's 1960. Yeah. They test the jacket and they're like, yo, it's blood. But while it's being tested, I assume it's in little lab centrifuge things, because that's all science really is, is putting things in things that spin real quick and watching it. Um, They are like, we're going to give you more polygraph shit. And he fails every single polygraph interview. So he passed the very first one and all the rest of them. He's just like, he eh. failed. Yeah. So he fails all of them. Then the jacket is found to be stained with blood. And so the investigators are like, okay, we're putting him under surveillance. They don't have enough to arrest him yet, but they're fucking watching him. And also they're like, let's look into other crimes and things in the area. And then they come across a rape in 1959, so one year earlier. 
that also happened in the Starved Rock National Park. I hate this. I hate that both of ours seem to have connections to other cases. Potentially. I don't know where you are in yours, but... Like always, our cases are connected in way too many ways than make sense. Yeah, we picked an entire decade and we've got similarities. Well, and I will say, that maybe goes to show you how there are a lot of similarities in a lot of the crimes that happen. Uh, I mean, that is very true. But the investigators, they find this crime, they interview um, the victim and show her pictures of men. And when she sees Chester Wegger's face, she starts screaming. That's the man who raped her. So once they had that, they arrested him. Right. And once they had him under arrest, they're questioning him about the rape. And then they also began to press him about the murders. Because they they can arrest him because she can directly accuse him and identify him in the rape. So that's what they've arrested him on. They're questioning him about it and start kind of getting more into the murders. They kept him into the interrogation room until after midnight. So he's been in it for like 12 hours or something, being questioned nonstop. I don't actually know when he went in, but I know it was like a fucking long time. Mm -hmm. So it was sometime in the morning or something. But they're questioning him and he is exhausted. And finally, in the middle of a sentence, he's like, can I see my family? And so a police car went over to his parents' house, got his mom and dad, brought him to the courthouse. They had a few minutes to chat with him. And then an official statement was taken the next day in which he confessed to the murders. Oh, wow. He confessed to them? He confessed to them. There was, in his confession, he said that he did it. Uh, he just wanted to, like, rob them and, like, steal her one of the women's wallets. But that they fought back, and then he hit them. And then, you know, he realized that it wasn't a wallet, it was a camera. Which I'm like, first off, what the fuck did this camera look like and or what the fuck did wallets look like in 1960 yeah i don't think there could really be that confusion um but his confession was transcribed and there was a lot of um there were certain things in his confession that were very eye-opening to detectives you know they asked like why did you drag these women into this like you know under this overhang because they could tell they were murdered somewhere and then dragged dragged, um, under there and he said that you know he saw this plane or he heard this plane go overhead and he got scared that i was the police looking for the missing women so he dragged them under the overhang where they couldn't be found to hide them so the exactly to hide them so they could not be seen from the air and so investigators went and looked and yeah they found the logs that a a little like biplane had gone over that area at the suspected time in the murders. And that was something that only the killer would have known. Yeah. Yeah. Because that makes sense. I mean, honestly, as a reason why he killed them in one place and drugged them to another. I mean, there can be a lot of reasons why you would move a body, but that's a pretty, that just doesn't sound like something you would make up. Or, or well, too much of a coincidence of like, oh, I didn't want anyone to fly over, so I moved him under there. I definitely don't think it's something you could make up, especially for you to just be like, I'm lying, and it be true. Right. But I'm suspicious. I'm just saying, I feel like a murder in an area that, you know, is obviously close to an airport enough, like a, a small airport, you might... 
if your police or your investigators looking into this, you might be like, hmm, I wonder if there were any like plane witnesses who flew over this in the six, seven months between the murder and this. I don't exactly know what the timeline was if he told them this and then they were like, oh, what the fuck? Let's go to the airport and ask and found it out. Or if they knew it and when he told them, they were like, um, what the shit? But after this, he confessed several more times for the murders. And then after he got a court-appointed attorney, all of a sudden he changed his story and said that he was innocent. He did not do this. He said the police and investigators had coerced the confession out of him. He said that they held a gun to his head and that he'd lied. This wasn't true. Because also remember... He's all of this happened in 1960. There was no lawyer present. This was before Miranda rights and everything. So when were Miranda rights a thing? I think in the mid to late 60s. I want to say 1967. I've never thought about that. It was after 1960. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not at this time. So that's interesting. So are you saying there's like the possibility that the police are saying one thing happened at that time, and he's now like, uh, no, that didn't happen. I didn't do this. That That is what Wegger is claiming. Yeah. He is saying that he was coerced by the police to confess to this. I have a lot of suspicions that I'll get into in a little bit, because we cannot forget that police coercion uh, into confessions happened a lot before Miranda writes. I mean, it still happens now. Exactly. I mean, it it is very much something that does happen. I think happened a lot more often back before Miranda writes, before um, a lot of the things we have today. I think we have a lot better practices. We've learned a lot more, but I mean, so I'm like, eh, police being like coercing him, I'm, I would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah. So that that is his story. He is saying that they fed him this information. The reason he mentioned the plane, the police were like, you saw a plane go overhead. We know a plane went overhead. Is that why you moved the bodies? Tell us why you moved the bodies. You know, whatever the fuck the police do. I've never been questioned by police, <laughs> knock on wood. So I don't know. But um, anyways, he's saying he was coerced into his confession. He was brought to trial. And this, I mean, it was a big trial. And at it, they were seeking the death penalty. I mean, it's 1960. Of course they were. Yeah. Also, it was I mean, three yeah. victims, so I don't agree with it, obviously, but I get that that's what they were seeking. Yeah. So on March 4th of 1961, which was almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for him. And on his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to life in prison. Glad it was just life. I mean, not just life, and I'm glad it was life and not death. So... After the jurors, like, were released and walked out of the courthouse, reporters talked to them and asked them if they knew that in Illinois, a life sentence meant that in just a few years, he'd be eligible for parole. Really? And the jurors had no idea that's what that meant. I think it's, like, 10, 15 years you could be eligible for parole at this time. I don't know if the laws are the same now, but at this time, a life sentence... With possibility of parole meant after like shorter than should be amount of time, you're eligible for parole. You know, you know, to me that sounds like 12 people that didn't read the instructions because I am sure they were given that information. I don't know if they were. Why would a jury not be given all the information they need about what 
comes with every sentence. I don't know, but I cannot imagine with 12 people, every single person not reading that or not remembering or whatever. Because I feel like, you know what? Life sentence. Yeah. Someone would have been like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Y'all, they could be paroled in 15 years. I mean, honestly, you like to think that, but okay. And I say this, and this is a little like taking out of like jury duty and whatever, but literally one of my biggest pet peeves in life is people who don't read instructions, read the full email, read what I said, take a fucking second. So, And I swear to God that... In my perspective, is like 90% of people out there don't do that. I'm pretty sure, like, granted, I don't know, I've never done jury duty, but I'm pretty sure when it comes to the punishments and what they mean, the judge is supposed to tell you, like, what they mean. I don't think they have, like, a packet in front of them or a pamphlet. I don't know. One of us needs to get jury duty and actually do a case, even if it's something small, and be like, okay... What information were you provided to be able to make these decisions? Because what I am saying, and like, maybe this is just a case in point. If these people, these people are not if, these people are responsible for someone's life. Like, whether they're going to be in jail, whether it's going to be death, whether it's going to be 10 years, they should have all the information. And if they don't, that is such a miscarriage of justice. Absolutely. I think they were not told because their response when the reporters told them this, they were shocked. And some of them told the reporters that if they knew this meant he could be released in like, you know, on parole in this short of time, they would have gone for the death penalty. He would have gotten the electric chair. I'm just saying, listeners, if any of y'all knows if this is like if you've been through jury duty on a case, I'm just really curious of what type of prep work you're actually given. Um, as far as yeah. being a part of someone's sentencing, just curious. Yeah, but Chester Weger was incarcerated at the Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet, Illinois. And after 23 times of trying to get parole and each time failing, the entire time he maintained his innocence. He stuck with his story that he was innocent, he had not done this, he had been coerced by the police... After 23 times of being denied parole, on November 21st, 2019, so very recently, he was granted parole on his 24th try in a 9-4 vote at the age of 80. Wow. Also, both of our cases had something happen in November 2019. But wow, 80 years old. And he was 22? 22 he was sentenced on his 22nd birthday and he was 80 when he was released on parole and i don't know if he did it i do not like cases where really the only evidence i I don't i don't know about this case because i i could see the argument on both sides because what they have him on is the twine they were tied up with looks to be the same as something from the kitchen he was a dishwasher There is a sexual assault victim who identified him by his picture as raping her the year before. And then they have his confession after um, interrogation. I don't know. Part of me can believe the story of he is guilty of the rape and not necessarily the murder. Yeah, the murder evidence seems circumstantial. Yeah, especially when someone is being questioned for 12, 14, 16, I don't know how many hours. It was a long fucking... Longer than is allowed now. 
And that's your big thing, is the confession? No. Well, it seems as if there's no factual evidence in this. It's like Twine in the same location where he works. Well, I mean, literally, that's like me getting convicted because there's a stapler in my office that was the same model as the one used. I mean, I, I don't know. Apparently, exactly. my stapler. Um, I guess. But also, like, the and the stuff that could prove one way or another, like, the jacket that's covered in blood. Oh, I forgot about the bloody jacket. Did they test the blood? Yeah. Do you know? They aren't able to. Oh. It was not stored properly. Another thing our cases share. Oh, shit. It wasn't stored properly, so there's there's not a way to test it and get any answer. Okay. But, um, yeah, as of basically Thanksgiving of 2019 he has been paroled and he's gonna be going to a um it's like a house for uh to help people recently released from prison that was the latest news thing i saw i'm glad something like that exists like a halfway house yeah is that what a halfway house is i don't is? know okay um but that's good i'm glad that exists mm-hmm. so i don't know how i feel either way because i can see both sides i know most people that are like like, people that live in the nearby towns and things like that think he's innocent. Sounds like you think he's... Oh, no. Sounds like you think he's innocent, too. I, I'm i leaning more towards that. I just... I don't know if he's innocent or guilty, but I do think that there was not enough evidence at trial to convict him as guilty. Yeah, I get that. So, that's kind of where I stand. But that is my case. That is the case of the Starved Rock murders. All right. Um... It Starved Rock was that the park? Yeah, Starved yeah. Rock. It was um it was named after there was a Native American tribe that lived in the area and in like the seventeen or eighteen hundreds, fucking like white settlers surrounded them and starved them to death. And then named the so park after that's that. The name Wow. Of it. Yeah, it's all all of it's fucked up. Every single part of my case is super fucked up. Well, okay that that was so are you ready to jump into postmortem i am ready as i'll ever let's do it so i think in this one honestly i think we have some pretty evenly matched cases but i think your case it has a lot more injustice in it i mean it has injustice for the guy that was like falsely accused and then like stalked by police for years the rest of his life and also the rest of his life but then also because the family of elsie they never really got an answer and yeah the guy they think that did it did go to prison it wasn't for this the family i mean they had questions for 50 years they didn't know and in my case it's more of a question of um injustice you know it's i'm not sure yeah if 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 he was guilty or not i don't think anyone is sure but either way if he's guilty you know he's served his time and he's out if he's not guilty it's fucked up but i i don't know but in your case i do know there was injustice well and the fact that pickering's file was on the police's desk just days after elsie's murder yeah and that somehow all they did was surveillance of his home and then quote unquote didn't see him even though they did they just didn't know it was him didn't even question this woman going in and out of the home justice was not served and then pickering went on to kill another young girl and rape another so it's just it's one of those 
where, you know, looking at it in hindsight, it's like, oh my God, they were this close. And they just yeah. didn't put forth the effort. And then they somehow accused someone and took him to trial with no evidence, like only first glance evidence, which means assumptions exactly. and coincidences. Yeah. So I think I think for this episode, um, your case is the more intense one. I will take it. I mean, your case, I had a lot of questions throughout. And like you, I'm not 100% sure how I feel, like if, if I think you did it or not. I feel like I need to read up more on this one to really solidify my feelings. But I will totally let you pick the topic again for next week, though. I, I can do that. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. You know how much we love it. You know how much we love reading your reviews. It's seriously hearing your joy in your own words is literally our favorites. Every freaking time we get a review, we are like texting each other like, oh my God, did you see this one? Yes. Um, and it's, it's so cute. Um, but yes, we love hearing from y'all, love hearing what y'all think. Also, while you are leaving us that awesome five-star review, make sure to like and follow us on our social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Send us a message if you want to say hey. Yeah, check out the pages. Do it. And again, thank you all so, so much for tuning in, for listening to this episode. Hope you all loved it. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.